Good morning. Is your head and heart in the game? You can, you can respond where you're at. Is your head and heart in the game? You know what I'm asking you? Okay. We've had, we've had laid before us the opportunity to get our head and heart in the game as we've worshipped, as we've come to the Lord's table, as we've come before His throne. And so I ask you again to respond in your heart. Is your head and your heart in the game? Because I promise you this, the heart and the mind of, of Christ are in the game. He's active. He's on the move. He's faithful. Just, just seeing if you're paying attention. Thank you, Mark. Mark is paying attention. And yet, we look around us and we see something that seems contradictory to what we've been singing about and what we've just remembered. How do we fix the mess that we're in. What's the answer to this crisis? And by this crisis, I mean more than the fact that, that we're wearing masks. It's bigger than that. I hope you realize that. It's bigger than COVID, what's happening in our world right now. How do we fix this mess? What is the answer to this crisis? What is my part in contributing to this mess? I've had so many conversations with people. What's the answer? How do we fix this? What's wrong? And usually those conversations will include finger pointing in multiple directions. That's what we do. I've had a lot of those conversations. It hit me this week. I'm not sure that I've had a single conversation myself with somebody else being brutally honest and asking the question, how have I contributed to the mess. How am I contributing to what's happening in my Well, I'm not. I'm not. I'm a Christian and I I uh, and then again the finger pointing. What's my part in this mess? The text that we have before us this morning, Luke chapter 13, you many of you know, most of you know we're walking through the gospel of Luke and our our goal our heart is to bring Jesus in to focus. We we've said it so many times this year and by the way, we're almost halfway through the year. Is that crazy? Man, I'm that old guy now saying life speeds up as you get old. You know, wait, just wait. And my younger people are like, eh, what's wrong with this old guy? But you're experiencing it a little bit, aren't you? It's just, man, it just seems to be. And here we are halfway through the year. And we've said so many times, how do we bring Jesus? Or we need to bring Jesus into focus because we need to fix our eyes on Him. But when you fix your eyes on Jesus, make sure you're fixing your eyes on Jesus. That you can see Him clearly. And that's our heart, our goal as we walk through the Gospel of Luke. I believe it's Luke's intent. If you go to the beginning of the Gospel, you'll see it tells us the purpose for this Gospel. It is for the Gentiles. It's for a guy named Theophilus. It's for the non-Jewish part of the world, if you will, to understand exactly who Jesus is. It's for everyone, but specifically... He wants us to have a clear picture of Jesus. And we, we come to our text this morning in this journey, chapter 13, verse 5, and it opens up with, at that time. Now, this is really boring and it's like, it seems insignificant, but I hope that you're recognizing as we go through Luke that he's, he's, he's reminding us that he, of what his task is. I want to give you an accurate understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. And so you'll see these phrases in Luke Unlike the other, three, the other three Gospels. 
He's, he's, he's writing this journal, if you will, detailing the life of Jesus, the claims of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, most importantly, the heart of Jesus, so that we can see Him clearly. And that we can choose to fix our eyes on this Jesus that Luke lays before us. At that time, some people came to Jesus and they reported to Him. Let me pause there because you, we all know people like this, right? Maybe we are these people. <laughs> Jesus needs to know. I'm not sure He does, and so I want to make sure He knows. Some of us pray this way. I'm not looking, if I look at you when I say this, it's not because I know this about you, but I have to look at somebody. So if the Holy Spirit just leads me to look at you when I say that, then talk to Him about it. You know, I've got to make sure Jesus understands the situation. I've got to make sure He knows what's happened in the world today before I you know, praise Him and worship Him and ask for things. But first I need to make sure He's got the facts. Nothing new. Some people came and reported to Him, to Jesus, did you hear, basically, did you hear about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with the sacrifices? Did you hear about this horrible event? Now, we, we might know a little bit about this. In Acts chapter 5, it, it gives us a hint of, uh, of a moment that, that Pilate was governor of Judea and he ended up killing some people. He ordered the, the killing of people in the temple courts when they were as a part of their, they were there for their worship in the temple that Herod had built. And he gave an order. We don't know the specifics of why he gave that order, but I know sometimes we think of Pilate as this very calm, you know, thoughtful guy, right? That had this conversation with Jesus. And you, know, you know what we're given, right? And then we see him washing his hands and we think, oh, well, that's kind of in the middle, right? I mean, he, I mean, he had to do what he had to do as the governor, and so he kind of picked the, you know, the, right? Let's give him a little, you know, we kind of give him a little, and you guys do what... You. Pilate was not a nice man. He was a Roman governor. He was a soldier at heart. And the reason he had moved up to his position is because he had done what Rome had told him to do. And when Rome said, hey, you need to squash this rebellion, you need to stop people from disobeying Rome, it included sending soldiers into the temple and slaughtering people as they were worshiping. Now this might be the moment that these people are referring to. It would have been about this time. Have you heard, Jesus, what happened? Have you heard about these Galileans whose, whose blood was, was mixed with their sacrifices? The temple was a mess. The blood of the animals that had been brought for sacrifice and the blood of the people that were killed. And he responds to them. What does Jesus respond to almost every time? With a, look at your Bible. Do you think, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all Galileans because they suffered these things? Now put yourself in their place for a minute because if I'm these people and I go, have you heard, have you heard what Pilate did? And Jesus says, well, do you think they're more sinful than other Galileans? My response was like, wait, did he hear what we just said? Let me, let me say, what, is he, what, is he, what, is, what does that mean? Jesus sees through, doesn't he? He sees the right here. And I, and I hope it comforts you as, as well as scares you a little bit that right now he sees right through this to here. Yes? We come in, we sit, we sing, we do the things 
that we do together, and those are good things. But never forget Jesus sees you, and He loves you, and He loves me, but He sees right through this to this. And that's where He wants to deal with us. He doesn't want to deal with this. Right? He wants to deal with this. Have you heard what happened? Well, do you think those people were more sinful? What is he saying? Do you think they somehow had that coming to them? Now, why does Jesus talk this way? We, we know that the, the, the belief of the day was that when terrible things happened to you, it was because of sin that you'd committed. You remember Jesus and his disciples are walking along and there's a man who was born blind. You remember that moment? And before Jesus can do anything, his disciples say, Hey, Master, who sinned? Did this guy sin? Is that why he was born blind? Or was it his parents? That was the common belief among the people of God. That God acted that way. And do you remember Jesus turning to his disciples? Or maybe he's looking at the man who's blind and he says, Neither this man nor his parents sin. That's not the issue. You're thinking wrong. What's happened in this man's life is for the glory of God. Remember that? So they come and they say, well, okay, so do you know about this? And he understands what they're, they're thinking here and here, what they're feeling. And he says, do you think that somehow they're more sinful? Somehow they deserve what's happening to them? They're worse than other Galileans? By the way, Galileans had a terrible reputation. They just were kind of rough and, and rude and crude and just, you know, the people in the city of Jerusalem saw them as kind of the hillbillies of the day. <laughs> Sorry if you're a hillbilly. Becky and I are many in, in here are part of a, a ministry called Trace Diaz, which takes place up in the mountains. And I interact, interacted with a couple yesterday and, or had conversations about it that, you know, they're the, they're the hill people and we're the flatlanders. You know, we're, they're the hillbillies and we're the cityots. That's the new word, yeah, cityots, because we're from the city. The Galileans were kind of seen that way. They were just kind of seen as these ramshackle people. If I was brave enough, I would start naming certain neighborhoods maybe and how neighborhoods look at each other. Come on, it's true. We used to have a guy on the radio here that's now a national radio guy that used to point out certain neighborhoods. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. We do that. That's what we do. And he says, do you people think that somehow they deserve this? No. You're wrong. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Wow, that's probably not the answer they were thinking of. He expands. He says, well, let me, let me point something out. Let me bring something else to your attention. Remember when that tower fell? On, or the, the people, those 18 people that the Tower of Siloam fell on and they killed them? Remember that tragedy? Do you think... Again, what's he doing? He's exposing this and this. Do you think that they were more sinful? Somehow they deserved that to happen to them? More so than the people in Jerusalem? We've talked about people in the, in the countryside, in the, in the suburbs or the rural areas. Let me give you an example from the city. Let me address you city people. You think that when that tower fell and those 18 people died in that tragedy, somehow they were more sinful than their other city dwellers, the other members of Jerusalem or the citizens of Jerusalem? No. If you're thinking that, you're wrong. I will tell you, I tell you, but unless you repent, 
you will all perish as well. Let me, let me say it this way. Jesus challenges us. Jesus, in fact, He changes, this is His intent, how we think about people. I asked us at the beginning, how do we fix this mess? What's the answer to our mess? How am I contributing to the mess? Let me start here, because I believe this is Jesus' intent. He says, I want to change how you think about people. Now, for this to be helpful for us, you have to be honest with yourself right now, and you just have to, in your heart and your mind, come to, come to the truth. And I don't know what it is, but you need to come to the truth, as I need to come to the truth. How do I think of people? I'll give you a silly example that hopefully will help us think more seriously. When I see chain-link fence in a front yard, now some of you have chain-link fence in your front yard, when I see chain-link fence in the front yard, it causes me to think something about those people in that house. I do. I'm just being honest with you. I'm not proud of that. I'm not saying that's the right way to think. That's just hopefully an example, a light example, that can help us step back and say, okay, Jesus, you're asking us to change how we see people. And included in how we see people is me. Because what he's ultimately exposing is you somehow think you're better than other people. You judge those other people and you go, ah, I know why those 18 people died in that tower. I know why those Galileans were, were there and the, what Pilate did to them. Now they came and said, we're just telling Jesus about some facts, but Jesus knows their heart. He knows our heart. And he says, I want to change. This is the starting point. I want to change how you see people, how you think about people. The reality is we selfishly attribute our affluence and our influence to our own worth or worthiness. You remember the moment when the Gospels record the Pharisee praying. And he says, thank God that I'm not that poor person. Now, it was a regular practice of the Pharisees to say, thank you God for not making me a Gentile or making me a woman. Haha, <laughs> 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 right? Don't, don't shoot the messenger, okay? I'm just saying. This idea that somehow we're better than other people. The group of people that Jesus had the just the most pushback with were the Pharisees, the experts in the law, the group of people that really believed they were better than everybody else. Jesus wants to change that. Now, it can be more subtle with you and I. That's where the Holy Spirit wants to go right now. So, I, I, no, I, I love people, and I, everybody, you know, yeah, I'm. All lives matter. And it can be more subtle. It can be more subtle that I think of myself better than other people. We convince ourselves, and you can use a multitude, and you, if, if there was somehow, and praise God He doesn't, but if there was some way God could just put up on the screen, He could just shine a, a radar gun at you and shine it at you, and all of a sudden all of your thoughts and dreams and desires were up on, enlisted on the screen. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, no, it would not be cool. <laughs> Thank you for being gracious. But no, it wouldn't. But, he, but he, he wants to deal with that. The Holy Spirit wants to go there and say, hold on, just stop for a minute. Because our first reaction to this truth is we want to point out somebody else that thinks this way. 
And do we not understand that's exactly what we're doing? We're doing the very thing that He tells us we need to repent from. If you somehow think you're better than other people, and here's his, his, his theological point, if you don't repent from the idea that somehow you deserve salvation and they don't, you're doomed. Because your faith is not in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And your faith is not a humble faith. That it's like the faith of a child that just comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I am a sinner. I am a sinner and I have nothing to bring. I fall on Your grace. I understand that grace is undeserved and it's unmerited. And I cry out for mercy because I am a sinful man. You don't see yourself like that? You're doomed. And he points out to this crowd you got a problem. You're seeing yourself better than other people. Unless you repent, you will perish as well. He wants to change how we think about people, how we see people. I'll, I'll, it's, it's, he wants, it's this. He wants to challenge it. He wants you and I to be honest. He wanted that crowd to be honest. He wants you and me to be honest. Painfully honest. So you're right, Jesus. I read these words in Philippians chapter 2, and boy, does it convict me. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, hear it, consider others equal to yourself. Oh, some of you are paying attention. Consider others more important than yourself. Others should come first. They deserve my love. Because love puts someone else before ourselves, doesn't it? Isn't that Ephesians 5? Husbands love your wives like Christ. Wives, the, the, the ultimate expression of love is that the needs of others are more important than our own. Father, if there's any way this cup can pass for me, there isn't any way for, the, for this cup to pass for me. Because if this cup passes for me, then I'm no longer love. I'm no longer acting in love. Love tells me to go suffer and die on the cross. Doesn't it? He got that. He knows that. He wasn't wavering in that. He's helping us to understand what love really is. The other guy comes first. Jesus knows our heart. He knows that we struggle with this. He knows the crowd did. He knows that we are right now. And if we don't get, if we don't get to this point, then we will continue to be a part of the mess that's happening right now. We've got to own that. As Christians, as those who say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I've got to own that. If I don't allow Jesus to change how I think about people, I'm going to continue to be a part of the problem and the mess. Everyone should look out not only for their own interests, but for the interests of others. Verse 6. So he tells his disciples, his parents, so he answers questions with a question, and then he follows it up with a... <laughs> oh. Man, maybe we should just really take to heart that we need to be better storytellers. Seriously, at night with our kids and with one another, maybe we need to preach less to each other. There's a place for preaching. Allow me, please. But maybe we should preach less out in our lives and, and, and condemn and point fingers. Maybe we should be better storytellers. Let me tell you a story. A man had a fig tree, and he planted it in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it. What? Isn't that crazy? Are you paying attention? No, you're not. Okay, you are? Okay. He planted a fig tree and he came and he expected there to be fruit on it. What? Is that crazy? No, it's not, is it? 
Now, if he had expected to find peaches on it, then we might go, hoo-hoo. But he came looking at the fig tree, expecting there to be figs. He came looking for fruit on it, but he found none. Told the vineyard worker, the one taking care of his vineyard, listen, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. By the way, I have a pomegranate tree in my backyard that I planted. Some of you know the story. The first one, my dog dug it up. But I want pomegranates, so I planted a pomegranate tree. And last year, these blossoms came and the squirrels ate every one of them. This year, poof, flowers all over it. I'm going to have pomegranates. There's one left on my pomegranate tree. It may be gone by now when I get home because of the squirrels. There's nothing more frustrating. I, do, I want to tear the tree up. I want to cut it down. It's, it's, it's taking up space in my backyard. Now, from Leviticus chapter 19, we know that there was instructions from God. When they, when they planted trees, they were not to eat fruit for the first three years. And then on the fourth year, the harvest belonged to God. On the fifth year, it was theirs to enjoy. This man likely has been coming for seven years plus years. Because the first three, he wouldn't have expected fruit. The fourth one, it would have belonged to the Lord. And now the fifth year, I get figs and there was none. And the sixth year, there was none. And on the seventh year... There was none. Notice what he tells the guy taking care of the vineyard. Cut it down. (laughs) Just cut it down. Dig it up. I'm going to go home and dig up my pomegranate tree. (laughs) Why should it even waste the soil? Why should I waste water on this thing? But the caretaker replies to him, Sir, leave it this year. Give me one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. Perhaps it will bear fruit next year. But if not, you cut it down. Many of you will remember Gary Livingston, dear, dear friend of mine, Marianne's husband. He went to be with the Lord. That guy loved trees. And I don't care for whatever reason, he never wanted to cut down a tree. No, no, no. Well, we've got to build a building there. Well, oh, we just put it in the middle of the building. We can't cut down. You know, he just he hated cutting down trees. And I, I hear Gary in, in this story. This man, this vineyard keeper, just says, well, give it one more year, and, but then if it doesn't bear fruit, I don't think I can bring myself. You cut it down. What's the point of this story? Jesus expects His people to be fruitful. He expects us to be fruitful. He expects us to be fruitful in the season that we should be fruitful. It was, it was a problem that this tree did not bear fruit. It was a problem to the extent that this tree was very close to losing its place in the vineyard. He's not talking about salvation. He's not saying, that I'm going to kick you out of my kingdom. But I believe his point is, and he uses this in the Old Testament as well, um, the fig tree was a picture of Israel and God expects there to be fruit. He expects His people to be fruitful. Now, I love this verse in Isaiah 5, verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2. God is speaking. He's really lamenting. And in verse 2, He says this. He says, the, the vineyard keeper, He broke up the soil. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and He even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. He goes on in chapter 5 to talk, what am I going to do? My people whom I love and I I did all this preparation and all this protection and provision and I expected them to produce fruit. And they're they're producing fruit, but it's bitter and it's sour and it's worthless. 
It's not good fruit. Which begs me to answer, ask in my own head, what does it mean to be fruitful or what is the fruit that Jesus is looking for? And my mind goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. These three, three remain. You know this passage, right? Faith, hope, and and the greatest of these is love. Paul says this in Galatians 5. Now, there's not necessarily an order to the fruit of the Spirit, but I do believe it's significant where he starts. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The dominant quality, the dominant character, the dominant nature of God is that He is love. That's what we're experiencing at the table. That's what we should think of when we see that. Every day when I confess my sins and He's faithful and just to forgive. Why is He faithful and just? Because He is love. What's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest thing I can do with my life to be right with God? Love the Lord God your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is just as important. You love your neighbor as yourself. I'll say it this way, and I believe this truly. God expects His people to be known by love. He expects His people to produce the fruit of love. Say, well, yeah, but we're in a drought. You love me? Okay, then I'm going to say it this way. I don't care. doesn't matter. Well, that's heartless. And drought, plenty, difficult, easy. The expectation is that His people would produce love because the, the, the fruit is the result of the Holy Spirit working in me. And the Holy Spirit is never in a drought. Hear me? When I say that, what I mean by that? The Holy Spirit's never in a drought. He's never distracted. He's never detained by other things. He's always producing in us. When He finds fertile soil, He produces in us the fruit of love. Jesus wants to change how we see people, and He wants us to know that He expects us to be fruitful. Now, as we've seen a couple times in Luke, He kind of keeps ramping up. He keeps intensifying the point that He's making. And it continues. He's teaching in verse 10. He's teaching in one of the synagogues now. He's moved. The scene has changed. And on the Sabbath day, he, one of His practices was to teach in the synagogue. And He's teaching on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And while He's teaching, a woman was there. Luke says, you look out into the crowd, and there was a woman there. In fact, there was a woman that had been coming and, and, and was a part of this. The implication is that she'd been a part of this group of people for 18 years. Wow, she's faithful. But there's something significant about being told that she was there for 18 years. It says that she had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. She physically had likely something with her back that had caused her to... She could not... She would greet you like this. For 18 years, she had suffered with this. And when Jesus saw her in the crowd, He calls out to her. I love this. this so He's teaching. He's, he's teaching in the synagogue. And, you know, the men are on one side, the women are on the other side, and all the tradition was there. And He's teaching. He's got the scroll. And in the middle of His teaching, He says, Woman! Your name is Denise, woman. And he calls her out in the middle of the, of, the, of, the, of the proceedings, what's happening. He says, woman, you're free from your disability. You're healed. 
And then he goes to her. Do you see it? He goes to her and he lays his hands on her. I won't this morning. I'm not Jesus. He lays his hands on her and instantly she is restored and she begins to glorify God. You think there was singing, worship singing in that service? I absolutely believe that. But the guy in the front row, the leader, Mr. Jim Quayle, or yeah, the leader of the synagogue. No. <laughs> See how he's pointing fingers at other people? The leader of the synagogue is indignant. He's furious with this. This is outside protocol. This is not in the bulletin. This is not the order of the service. How dare he do this on the Sabbath? He's indignant. Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he responded to the crowd. I love that. He doesn't talk to Jesus. The leader of the synagogue doesn't say, how dare you, rabbi? He, just, he stands up, I think, and he turns to the crowd and he says, there are six days when work should be done. What is he saying? There's six days that this could have happened. You could have come any other day of the week, ma'am, and you could have been healed. Well... Wait a minute, this has been going on for 18 years. You see his heart, right? There are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days. Come back tomorrow when work should be done, when healing should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. But Jesus looks right at him. He says, but... The Lord, Luke says, the Lord answered him and said, hypocrite. Hypocrite. That's a horrible name in that day. Challenging somebody's integrity, somebody's reputation. You hypocrite. Doesn't each one of you untie his ox or a donkey from feeding, though it's the Sabbath, and you lead it to water even though it's the Sabbath? Don't you take care of your animals on the Sabbath? Do you stop feeding and watering your animals on the Sabbath? Well, no. Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. She has suffered in your midst. She has suffered in your presence. She has suffered under your ministry. People, she has suffered under your gazes and your judgment for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? Isn't today a good day to see her set free? When he had said these things, his adversaries... See, what Luke is implying is that in the crowd there were also Pharisees and experts in the law because they were always around. When he had said these things, his adversaries were humiliated. Couldn't argue with his reasoning, could you? Could you? No, there's no argument to come back. The whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things he was doing. Let me say it this way, and I, and I say this way intentionally. Jesus demands that we love people like He does. If I'm open and the Holy Spirit is speaking to me and saying, Kurt, I want to I challenge, I want to change how you think about people and you, you do see yourself better than, than other people and, and I want to work in you. I want, well, here's what I, I want to do. I want you to love people like I do. Because I know, Kurt, what you're going to say. is like, well, show me where I'm wrong, but then show me what to do. Show me what it looks like. Because right now it's confusing. If I say this, I'm over here and everybody on my side and everybody else is over there. If I say this, then I'm that. And if I don't say anything, then I, and if I don't do anything, so I don't know what to do, Jesus. 
What is he saying to us in that moment? He's saying, you just do what I do. You just do what I do. See, the, the, the atmosphere, the structure, the expectations were this. You behave this way, you follow these rules, you do things this way, and Jesus steps into it and he blows it up and he says, here's what's most important. This woman should be shown love. And I'm going to show you what it looks like. I'm going to set her free. You care more about your animals than you do for other people. How convicting is that? You care more about your stuff, is what he would say today. You care more about your car, your house, your possessions, the things that are important to you, may not be people. You with me? You still love me? You're not going to shoot the messenger, right? Well, I'm, not, I'm not writing this. I'm not making this up. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us this morning. He wants to change how we think about people. He expects us to be fruitful right now, to be known by love right now in the mess that we find ourselves. And if that's not strong enough, Jesus is demanding that we love people like He does. Right now. Now, that means I've got to get rid of some stuff, don't I? Can I just be practical as we wrap up? There's some things in the way of me taking this to heart and living it. And I've got to be honest with God first, and then we've got to be honest with each other. I do. I see people like this or like that, or I see certain people like this, and I excuse myself, and, and so I don't do anything, or I don't say anything, and he just reminds me, well, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to be known by love. That little thing on the back there, known by love, living, you know, living by faith, known by love. Because that's real. That, that's 1 Thessalonians 1. That's in my word. I want you to be known by love. Yeah, but Jesus, right now, it's really, really chaotic. And it's really divisive. And it's going to cost me something. Yes. You remember what it cost me to show love? We just came to remember but you're right, you're right. And then he looks at me with grace and love and he says, I demand as my child that you love people the way I do. Not the way you have been or haven't been. I want you to love people like I do. Every day is the right time to love people. You know these words in 1 John. If anyone says, I love God yet hates his brother, he is a... The person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he has not seen. Do you catch what that means? What that means is God puts people in our lives to love in order to affirm that we love God. You say you love God? Peter, you say you, you'll be with me till the very end? And Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's see. Don't forget John 21 where he comes back to Peter and says, you get it now, Peter? Oh yeah, I get it now. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> you know. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. God puts people in our lives, the people in our world right now, He's put in our lives for us to love them. Because if we cannot love them that are standing in front of us, we cannot love God who we have not seen. So stop saying you love God if you don't love the person in front of you. Tough, isn't it? But that's what it's saying. Jesus really hates the kind of judging that was taking place in that synagogue. He hates it. Does Jesus hate things? There's some things he hates. This is one of them. So in closing, these last three verses, he makes the deep theological application, the point of this whole section. 
He says, I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God. He loved talking about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like? What can I compare it to? How can I help you understand it? Well, it's like a mustard seed, a very tiny seed, whether it was mustard or not. It was a very tiny seed that a man took and he sowed in his garden and it grew and became a great tree. And the birds of the sky nested in its branches. Let me give you another helpful picture. What can I compare the kingdom of God to? Well, it's like yeast. Now, most of us don't make bread anymore. But right now, actually, my wife is doing that starter thing. Anybody know what that is? We put them in the baggies, and now there's four baggies, and if she doesn't give them away, there'll be eight next tomorrow, and then, you know. And it, and it just keeps doing it. It just keeps spreading. There's a yeast in there that's doing its thing, and it spreads. There's no stopping it. And they all went, yeah, we know what yeast is like. You take it, a woman takes it, puts it, mixes it into 50 pounds of flour, and makes this dough, and it spreads through the entire mixture. There's no stopping it. Let me say it this way. Love is the contagion of the kingdom of God. You know what a contagion is? We do now, don't we? <laughs> we certainly do today. It's, it's what spreads the kingdom of God. When he says, I want to change how you see people, I want, I want to challenge you to see them like this, I want you to be fruitful for me. In fact, I demand that you love people like I've shown you how to love. Because here's the, the, the theological foundation, the truth. Love is the contagion of God's kingdom. Love is what's going to spread like yeast or in that little seed. Right now we have cucumber seeds at our house in a little envelope. And it's, we just take it for granted. I know I do. But if you take that little seed, because I've done it my whole life, and you put it in ground, this giant plant comes out, and then these cucumbers form and you eat them. And you forget that it started with that little seed that you put in the ground. That little seed dies. And it grows into something that is beneficial for others. Because that's the kingdom of God. But the contagion, the, the, the method that God uses to build and spread His kingdom is love. Love. I want to encourage you, to just, if you'll just bow for me for a minute. With your, and you don't have to close your eyes. Well, you know, I, it takes me back to when I was a kid when I say this. But... It's just, it's, the idea is this, just free yourself from distractions, whatever that looks like for you. Does that, does that work? You can close your eyes, you can bow your head, you can kneel where you're at. And I want to say these one more time. You're just having a conversation with God. Jesus... wants to change how we think about people. Jesus expects us to be fruitful. He demands that we love people like He has shown us how to love. And He wants us to understand that love is the contagion of His kingdom. It's how He's going to spread it. So when I ask myself these questions, what do we do in this mess? What is the answer to this crisis that I find myself in? And what is my part in this mess? And I suggest that we listen to Jesus and we love people. We love people. You look to Jesus, you get Him clearly in focus, so you, we know what it looks like, and then we go love people. Father, would you help us 
Boy, do we need your help. We know your presence is here. We know that your will is good. We know that you're faithful and just. We need to hear your Spirit's voice speaking the truth of your word into our hearts and to our minds. God, we even need your help to be receptive to that. I do. By your Spirit, would you open up our, our, our hearts and our minds to be receptive to being your people right here, right now? We want to be fruitful. We want to be known by love. But Father, we need your work in us for that to happen. I do. Of any of us that are here this morning, if we're honest, I think we would all say the same thing. We need your hand at work in us. We want to go from this place to love the way that you love us, Jesus. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for being our Creator. And thank you for being our King. Thank you for building your kingdom right here, right now. Forgive us for missing what you're doing. Help us to see you clearly, Jesus, in this moment. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. I want to dismiss us. I think I'm supposed to do that. Am I missing anything? Okay. I lost my schedule here. So bear with me, please. Um, I'll just ask you to stand. We're going to be dismissed. Um, we are still under the restriction of wearing masks. If we can't keep six feet, if you can be six feet, then we have some freedom. But if we're within six feet, and I don't want to tell you to stay away by six feet. I want you to fellowship together and encourage one another. But we need to wear masks. And just be aware, too, that as we make our way out, the, uh, the team wants to do some cleaning and preparation. So as much as possible, make your way outside. I think it's nice today. Was not this morning beautiful, that breeze and last night? So we can make our way outside and we can fellowship and, and follow those protocols, but know that we want to get kind of cleaned up in here and then uh, for the next uh, service for people to come in and worship together. With that in mind, as we're dismissed, let me take us back to Romans chapter 8. I want you to hear these words as you go from this place to love like Jesus loved. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than victorious through Him who loves us. For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height, depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go and be people of love. God bless you.